very dangerous place to be in when you're really in in end stage uh, cirrhosis, end stage liver disease, because we really don't know where this is going to go. All we really know is that you're going to die at some point in time, but yeah. it's hard for us to treat you and keep you alive because you could be, like Matt said, DIC, you could be bleeding a lot at one point and then next day you're clotting Ooh, too much. I gotta go. I've been working, told them please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bro, just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog, swear I paid on my fees. I was starving for this day, now my fan, they can't eat. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cup of Nurses show here with your hosts, Peter and Matt, two nurses on a mission to change this world, one conversation at a time. So let's jump right into it. If you find a value in this show and want to join us on this mission, please share and review the show. It would mean absolutely everything to us. Cupofnurses.com for the latest info, updates, merch releases, and for our lifestyle podcast, you can check out wearefrontlinewarriors.com. In this episode, we are going to talk about cirrhosis, some of the signs and symptoms, how we treat it, and how liver damage actually leads to a cascade of issues and problems moving forward. So cirrhosis, that happens when the liver, when the liver is highly damaged, uh, usually leads to scarring of the tissue, and that's when these liver cells, hepatocytes, become unable to do their process. So if something happens to your liver due to a wide, wide variety of things that just causes damage to those cells and then those cells become fibrosed and scar and they become unusable cells they're unable to do any kind of work at all yeah when it comes to the scar tissue it literally becomes less vascular so you have no blood flow you have no lymph flow and it causes the hepatic insufficiencies and usually these patients that we see in the hospital they develop multi-organ failure we don't realize how important the, the liver is when it comes to our organs. It does so much when it comes to the heart or kidneys or pancreas. We can give you some medications, which doesn't affect, for the most part, all the other systems. But if the liver shuts down, you might have issues with clotting. You might develop, you know, GI issues. And it just it's a whole cascade that takes effect. So what are some of, uh, causes of liver cirrhosis? So one of them is the most prominent one, which is excess liver or alcohol consumption too much of alcohol causes your body to break it down in large amounts causes cirrhosis permanent scarring you could also have problems due to like injury if you have like a, a hit traumatic blow it'll cause problems with the bile duct and if the bile stays in the liver where it gets produced it could cause issues there and then also you have uh hepatitis I'm pronouncing it. <laughs> Jesus. Hepatitis. Hepatitis. I got the laugh piece this episode, guys. And I'm just like, okay. So different types of um, hepatitis. Hepatitis. <laughs> you have the C, you have the B, and the A. And that's literally a virus that's hanging out in the liver that could cause scarring as well. You have other diseases, which could be autoimmune, other viral infections, and also non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is in obese patients. And it could be non-fatty liver disease and non-obese patients, but li there's links to different products that we consume like fructose, high fructose corn syrup as well. When your body has too much of that, it actually causes scarring. And it's wild how that works, right? You have the visceral fat that gets stored around the liver, which is just literally releasing toxins and causing uh, damage. Mm. 
And the, the last one is right-sided heart failure. So that causes hepatic congestion secondary to right-sided heart failure, which could lead to portal hypertension and all that just leads to this uh, tissue scarring there and in insufficiency blood flow. So how the liver works? What does the liver really do? So there's two main things that the, or two main concepts that you need to know if you're trying to remember on how the liver works. So the first one, the liver takes substances out of our blood, metabolizes certain byproducts and also detoxifies the blood. The second thing that it does is storage. It stores substances that help with digestion, also stores clotting factors, different different proteins that help with clotting, and it also produces substances to help with digestion and to help with any kind of clotting and basic immune health. So it filters your blood in one aspect. A second aspect, it stores and produces other things that are, that help you basically maintain homeostasis. And the two things that you have to take into consideration is the two different types of cells and what they do. So the liver houses something called cuffer cells, which remove bacteria, debris, parasites, and old RBCs. So these these cuffer cells, they're basically like your cleaning mechanism in your, in your liver. And then the other one is hepatocytes. Those are your liver cells, you could say, and those are responsible for bile production, metabolism, storage also conjugates bilirubin and also helps with detoxification of the blood. So those are two main things is your hepatocytes and your uh, cuffer cells that are uh, both housed in the liver. Thank you, hepatocytes, for always cleansing my liver when I was younger and yeah. drinking a lot. <laughs> sure, right? Back in the day there with all that. So what are some functions of the liver? So one of them is glucose. So your liver, whatever is access in the blood, your body's, your liver is going to start it into glycogen. And if it doesn't properly synthesize glycogen and store it, that could lead to hyperglycemia. And it's interesting because we always think about the pancreas leading to diabetes with uh, insulin resistance in the cells, but it's mm -hmm. also a contribution to the poor breakdown and storage of uh, glycogen. Yeah, so a good thing to keep in mind is, is when you eat food, when you, you digest food, glucose gets released in the blood. And liver is responsible for taking that glucose out of the blood and storing it somewhere else, right? Because otherwise you just have glucose floating nonstop and you would always be, be hyperglycemic. So if you have a messed up liver, you have an issue of taking glucose out of the blood and storing it for, for later use called, called glycogen. So that's why we use hyperglycemia with patients that have liver disease or cirrhosis or any kind of liver issues because there is nothing, nothing, a, nothing is able to take that glucose and change into the stored form. Yeah, and on the contrary, if you have glycogen and your liver is not able to metabolize it and release it into the bloodstream in form of glucose, you're going to be experiencing episodes of hypoglycemia. So you can see both in liver disease, depending on what's happening. And sometimes it's crazy with those patients, like you're pushing D50. There's other things that are happening, like metabolic acidosis. But you know those patients where you're pushing like D50, rechecking the blood sugar after 15 minutes, and you're just like, dude, blood sugar is unchanged. It's still set in the 70s. What's going on? And a lot of those uh, cases is due to like liver issues. Mm. Another another function of the liver is lipids and protein. So the liver is able to convert ammonia, which is a byproduct of protein breakdown. And the ammonia gets converted to urea, which is a lot less toxic in the brain than ammonia. If you have issues with ammonia levels because of your liver, that's when we give patients the lactulose. They have like those smelly poops that we always know about and lactulose binds to ammonia gets excreted through the stool. Mm. And if you have neurological changes in your patient and you know they have a liver disease or something's going on, maybe a injury, 
they have elevated LFTs due to something secondary that we discussed that could lead to liver damage, go ahead and check an ammonia level. Maybe their ammonia is elevated. They need some PRN, lactulose, to help with their encephalopathy and neuro changes. Mm. Liver is also responsible for storage, and it's going to be mainly your fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin K, also stores minerals and iron, as well as we mentioned before, the, the glycogen. And what's important is, like Matt was talking about bile a little bit ago, so you need a bile to uh, to properly properly absorb and work with these with these um, like vitamins and minerals and all that, all that kind of stuff because you need bile to help absorb these fat-soluble vitamins. So I guess moving forward, next step would be digestion. We talked about a few of the key factors. It really helps with the digestion. It di- helps you uh, digest and absorb fats. So also bile is responsible for digestion and absorption of, of fats. So if you have problems with, with bile, you're going to have problems with gaining proper nutrition into your body. And it, it's just mm-hmm. to cut you off, it, it always confused me when I was younger. I'm just like, wait, doesn't the gallbladder produce bile? But it's actually the opposite where the liver produces it. The gallbladder stores it and you know those patients that they remove the gallbladder we always give them like these um i forgot the medication but it helps break down fat when you have uh when you eat usually they they take this medication in between their meals so it makes sense because the liver can't make bile that quick as you're consuming this meal and it Mm. could lead to an indigestion so we supplement these patients with this yeah yeah that's a good point that's why you see people have these low low fat diets because you can eat fat but the issue is when you eat a large fatty meal. Because like Matt said, the liver produces it, but if you don't have any in storage, then you don't have any as a reserve or a, or a backup. When you eat a, a higher higher fat meal than you normally do, your liver can't keep up with that synthesis, synthesis of, that, of that bile, so you're kind of stuck, and that's why they give you that medication. I'll, for me, I want to think pancreolipase, but it's not pancreolipase. It, it is something is like it? a light paste, yeah. Something like a light paste, but I don't know if it's pancreolipase or what, but something like light paste, I feel you. Don't yeah. quote us on this one, guys. We are nurses. We have a broad spectrum yeah. of intelligence. And in today's episode, we just couldn't nail down what is the <laughs> what is just that one pill that breaks down yeah. fat? It's something with a lipase because when you have the it's, ending lipase, it means to to break down. So every time you see a, a drug that has lace at at the, at the end, it's going to mostly be used as as a supplement or something to help break down uh, something uh, something else. So. What I age with digestion, uh, hepatocytes, those are the ones that actually produce the bile that help you absorb the fats and uh, fat-soluble vitamins. Uh, so another thing to consider about the liver is bilirubin. So a lot of times we see conjugated bilirubin or total bilirubin, and a lot of nurses don't really know what that means. So what is bilirubin? So first I talked about RBCs. So when red blood cells are removed by the cuffer cells, uh, the components of the red blood cells are, are, are broken down. They're recycled. So when a RBC is not able to do its damage. Our system captures those and breaks them down, digests those RBCs to other components that we could use for, for the future. So the hemoglobin gets broken down into hemi, and then the rest of the cell gets broken down into globulin groups. So then the hepatocytes metabolize the hemi into iron and bilirubin. So when the RBCs are broken down, this is where you get the bilirubin from, the broken down RBCs. And then the bilirubin is then put into the bile and leaves via the stool. So when you're breaking down RBCs, you're making these components, and then that bilirubin is then pushed out of the, the body uh, through stool. And that's actually what causes you to have brown and yellow stool is that, is that bilirubin because it's the byproduct of the breakdown of, of RBCs. Yeah, when these hepatocytes are damaged and they can't process this bilirubin, this is when bilirubin is leaking into the blood, 
This is why we check bilirubin levels for patients that have alcohol cirrhosis or cirrhosis in general. And this is what causes the patients to have yellow skin, the yellow sclera in the eye, maybe the mucous membrane. Sometimes they could have darker urine due to this breakdown and they have this itching that we can't control. And sometimes patients are getting scheduled um, Benadryl as a medication to help them with this. And this is literally due to bilirubin. Mm, yeah. Liver also produces blood plasma proteins such as albumin, fibrogen, and prothrombin, uh, which which aids in in vascular permeability. So, for example, albumin uh, it maintains osmotic or oncotic pressure of water. So they have an issue with producing this albumin. That's why you always see patients that have cirrhosis or insulin liver disease. They 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 always have edema. They're always swollen up because you don't have these 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 proteins albumin that keep the fluid in your vessel that's why we hang albumin because what albumin does it it takes the fluid out of your tissues and brings it into your vasculature so then you could properly pee it out and excrete it it's, it's very important that's why we always give albumin people that are in the liver failure or any kind of um kind of cirrhosis you could say and honestly albumin is a awesome medications to give you, your patients that are struggling with hypotension maybe and you give them a 250 cc bolus with not much, uh, what's it called, positive effects there, look at their albumin level. If they have a poor diet, if they're malnourished, they're going to have low albumin. They're going to be leaking, just like you said, and they're spacing this. Give them a dose of albumin to help that oncotic pressure, and that can maintain the pressure a lot better than just a regular bolus. Right. And then with the fibrinogen and prothrombin and other clotting factors, so liver produces a lot of different clotting factors. The clotting factor two, five, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's so much clotting factor that produces. It also helps produce protein C, S, and antithrombin. So when your liver fails, remember your liver is responsible for not only only clotting but also not clotting. So it goes both ways. So if you have really bad liver disease or cirrhosis, you're either bleeding or you're clotting. You're not you're not in between because your liver is responsible for both. That's a good thing to keep in mind. A lot of people say, oh. You know, your your liver failure, so there's a lot of bleeding. Not necessarily like your patient. You had that one patient that had ancillary liver disease, and he was bleeding a lot. Yeah, he was yes. going into DIC. Right, and some some people with liver failure they clot too much, so instead of bleeding, they they get a stroke or they or they get DVTs or they clot because your whole clotting cascade is messed up. Your body doesn't know when to clot or when to unclot. That's why you kind of see both sides of the of the spectrum, which is scary because you're not sure how you should exactly treat it because there's some parts of the body you might be clotting too much other parts you might not be clotting enough and it's a very very tough disease and sometimes it takes a really really hard toll on somebody it's not like your your heart stops you get a cardiac arrest and then you die this is a long and drawn out chronic process of you you dying because your body does not know what to do because it can't do anything because your main filtering mechanism is is unable to properly do its job with filtration, but also maintaining homeostasis in other aspects. Now it's not like yeah. kidneys where you could just go on dialysis. There's there's no like liver dialysis. There's only kidney dialysis because your kidneys are responsible for just cleaning the blood. They don't really really produce any other kind of proteins or any kind of uh, hormones or anything like that. They're mainly responsible for for just the detoxification process and clearing out process. That's why if you're gonna if you're gonna choose to go into one or the other failure wise you're better off going to renal failure because there's more that we could do because that's complex as the, as the liver. Yeah, and including in general, when you're in like healthcare and you're looking at these patients, they're a lot more complicated cases. When you look, when you're reading notes, at first, when you're like a nurse, you're trying to figure out what's going on with this guy. We're doing this, we're giving lactulose, we're giving PRBCs, we're giving Creo. Like, why is there so much going on? And this is why, like you mentioned, it's just not 
dialysis, easy fix. Let's remove medications that are hurting the kidneys. It's very multi-factored. There's a lot of a lot going on with the disease process. Mm. And the last function of the liver is, of course, detoxification. Most medications that are toxic to our body get broken down either by the kidneys or they get broken down by the liver. If the liver can't protect yourself from harmful um, drugs, you have more toxins in your body, which one of them could be alcohol or it could be medications. So when you have patients that have cirrhosis and you give specific meds like post-op, they could have a long time, they could have a longer time filtering that out and they might have encephalopathy or they might be lethargic for a longer time. So just things to uh, consider. Yeah, especially with propofol. If you have a patient that has really end-stage liver disease and they're intubated, sedated and you give them propofol, you're, you might want to recommend changing that to something else because remember what's responsible for breaking down lipids, your liver. And if your liver is, is shot or really damaged, you're putting more strain on the liver and it's going to be harder to wake that person up because propofol is 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 based off lipids. It's made with, with lipids with fat. So you're taking longer to excrete it and metabolize it in a body because you don't have a properly working liver. So it's kind of like a scary thing because if the patient is intubated sedated for a respiratory issue and you're complicating their liver issue, it's going to be a lot harder to get that patient extubated because you're not sure how long it's going to take for the propofol to, to wear off before they become actually alert enough to to respond and follow commands and actually have have the, the like a strong body to get extubated. Some complications of cirrhosis. So we'll start with portal hypertension. So portal hypertension is the duct where the gallbladder meets the liver. And due to scarring, the portal vein, they become more narrowed because of the um, the scarring. It restricts blood flow to that area. And also there is a backup of pressure, portal hypertension, which can affect the spleen. It could affect the vessels in the GI tract, which you hear... Um, GI varices and pe- pe- uh, people that are, uh, what's it called, liver cirrhosis patients, they get GI bleeds. Not only that, due to clotting factors, they also have this portal hypertension, which could just cause varices. Those small veins and esophagus and everything in the uh, GI tract could just burst mm. due to all this. And then we have to go in there and try to do uh, clippings with uh, EDG procedures and everything that GI does. Yeah, and then Matt, and Matt mentioned enlarged spleen, so splenomegaly. So a lot of people don't know what the spleen does. So the spleen actually stores your platelets and WBCs. So if you have that, that portal hypertension and you're not able to efficiently move these WBCs and platelets around, you're going to have have low platelets and low WBCs because of that portal hypertension. So it's you're going to be higher risk for, for infection and you're going to be a higher risk for, for bleeding as well. Yes. Uh, I already mentioned esophageal varices, but just a quick rundown. It's just increased pressure from the portal veins which causes increased pressure in the esophageal vein vasculatures, which leads that to become weak, that could rupture. And as you know, it could become life-threatening because your liver doesn't have proper clotting factors. You have maybe poor levels of vitamin K and you could just bleed out. So huge risk there. Mm. Another one is fluid overload. So as you know, due to poor clotting factors, due to low albumin, we don't have the oncotic pressure, ascites, Fluid is just building up in the abdomen. You hear these patients getting tapped every so often. Not only that, but because they get tapped, that creates risk for infection. Sometimes these patients come in for a septic shock. Mm. We do blood cultures and they, they are they are septic. They have infections due to just continuously opening you up by um, 
puncturing you for the paracentesis. And also some of those patients have like those continuous strains, like the really bad cirrhosis patients that also puts you at a risk of developing infections because that's open, you're draining fluids and things like that. Yeah. And like I mentioned before, and John, this is also a big one that's due to the increase in bilirubin in your, in your system because it can't get properly treated uh, with the bile. Another big one is hepatic encephalopathy. That's the one that you're going to see the, the neural changes. So it's better to have bile be built up in your blood compared to ammonia because ammonia is the one that's responsible for all these CNS effects, your central nervous system uh, complications. So it affects the brain directly and you're going to see altered mental status. You're going to see neuromuscular pro- problems, astroxysis, which is involuntary movements. Sometimes you're going to have tremors like the hand clapping. They're going to be slowly they're going to slowly lose their mind and lose their ability to to physically move or to control that kind of thing. So that's very scary. So ammonia is a very scary thing. And we try to get, get ammonia out of your system with lactulose, which then sucks because then you're dealing with diarrhea uh, the whole time. Yes, a lot of cleaning up the mm-hmm. poop. Clotting problems is, a, is another major one. We mentioned that, that before. Uh, you're going to see a change in their, their INR, their platelet count, all their coagulation factors. But like we mentioned before, the crazy thing is you're not sure if it's going to go they're going to shoot up or it's going to shoot down. So it's like close monitoring with, with the patient trying to figure out, are they in thrombocytopenia? Are they not clotting enough? Are they clotting too much? What's going on? How is, how is the presentation of the system? Is, is he spitting out blood? Is there a GI bleed going on? Or is he clotting too much where we did a Doppler and now he has two DVTs and maybe a PE is forming or some kind of a clot, clot somewhere else. So it's, it's a very, very dangerous place to be in when you're really in, in end stage uh, cirrhosis end stage liver disease because we really don't know where this is going to go all we really know is that you're going to die at some point in time but yeah. it's hard for us to treat you and keep you alive because you could be like Matt said DIC you could be bleeding a lot at one point and then next day you're clotting too much so it's like how the hell do we fix this because medication doesn't work within seconds it takes time we gotta we gotta manage it in some way if you if we're managing you for high risk for bleeding that takes a little bit of time until we actually manage that bleeding. And then if you randomly flip to clotting too much, well, now you got to figure out how to prevent you from clotting too much. And that takes time as well. So yes. it's a very dangerous slope to, to be in. So miscellaneous complications of liver cirrhosis would be renal failure. That's due to the hepato, hepatorenal syndrome. In severe cases, you might also develop liver CA, bone fractures due to low vitamin D, and diabetes, which could be secondary to liver cirrhosis because of the way you're glycogen is not properly being stored or broken down when it comes to like the major signs and symptoms i know we talked about them throughout this episode but we could just go throughout the, the system and just talk about them so we kind of get a refresher early stages usually asymptomatic you know your your liver could take a lot of damage same way your kidneys could take a lot of damage so a lot of the stuff that you're going to see is going to be more end stage when they're in a hospital for, for cirrhosis or any kind of liver damage they're probably already at a pretty bad spot where they're looking to get a transplant or some kind of a procedure to to prevent that from, from escalating. Uh, the first big thing is going to be your GI symptoms. Usually it involves anorexia, indigestion, nausea, vomiting, constipation, or diarrhea. That's that's kind of obvious you could say because like I mentioned before, your liver is responsible for digestion and creating some of these these proteins that, that aid in digestion. So you're going to see those kind of digestive issues coming out in the beginning, nausea, vomiting, all that kind of stuff that upsets your, your stomach. You said proteins. I just wanted to clarify it's the 
the bilirubin that we're producing to break it down, not proteins. But it makes certain proteins that also help with digestion. Oh, uh, okay, so cool, cool. Both, yeah. I just wanted to make sure we cover ourselves in the podcast yeah. here. Not, <laughs> not like proteins for, for, for growth. For proteins growth, like yeah, yeah. Things, yeah, yeah. No amino acids. Some respiratory systems that may, may develop, and that could be more related to the pleural fusions because you have a limit, limited thoracic expansion due to the abdominal buildup of ascites, which could be interfering with gas exchange that could lead to hypoxemia. So if you're putting your patient on O2, then they have a non-rebreather or they already have a face mask. Like what's going on here? Why are we increasing the O2? Maybe we need a chest x-ray. Maybe we need to get a blood gas. Let's troubleshoot it so things don't get worse and we don't need the patient to get uh, intubated. And a CNS symptoms, like I mentioned before, it's going to get, get real bad. Uh, towards the end they might start hallucinating they might have really bad shaking they might be delusional abundant and eventually they'll it'll, it'll lead to coma uh, i know when you had that patient you're giving him uh lorazepam right to kind of calm him down but he was kind of he was very very in stage he was, he was he was ready to go so sometimes we give ativan kind of benzos to to help them stay sane for that little bit of time that they have before they yeah. pass away from a hematologic standpoint we mentioned either dic or not having enough clotting factors where you have bleeding. So monitor your patient for bleeding, or you might develop some anemia where we have to transfuse you. Mm. Endocrine-wise, our body, it's almost like our body, to our body, I would say one of the last things that it kind of cares about, like when you're trying to, when you're dying and we're trying to, to survive, a lot of times patients come in and they have abnormal periods because your body isn't able to focus so much on uh, reproducing it's focused more on survival and we know a lot of our endocrine system is is focused on reproduction and, and the hormones that help with that so our it's crazy how our body flips with that and how our endocrine system really really takes a hit and changes when it comes to hospital because sometimes we have a patient in their 30s 40s that are they have a period at home but they come to the hospital come to icu and now they're they have an abnormal period or don't have a period as well because your body cannot maintain itself to focus on reproducing it's trying to just figure out how to stay alive. It's crazy how our body switches. So for men, you might see testicular atrophy, and for women, you're going to see maybe gynecomastia, loss of or loss or, or growth hair promotion, and you're going to maybe even see um, a complete stoppage of of uh, periods. Skin. So as we know, the patient gets jaundice due to bilirubin that leaks out into the blood, doesn't get digested into the stool, and you might have severe perpritis. Uh, extreme itching, dryness, poor skin turgor. We sometimes we give those patients some Benadryl for that. You might have some sp um, spider angioma and palmar arrhythmia. Mm. Tongue twister. Huh? Tongue twister. I know, man. It's English second language. Sometimes I'm reading these things. <laughs> I'm like, bro, I'm going to mess it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And just, it's, a, it's a slow deterioration over time of, of everything. Your heart starts to fail, your lungs start to fail, your kidney starts to fail. And just because the liver is responsible for so much, and if it can't do its job, then it's slowly going to stress out other organs. And once your liver is shot, it's going to really, really stress other organs, and those are going to kind of follow suit and just eventually fail. So that's where you get the um, uh, end-stage organ failure, Yeah, and everything starts to fail. A little bit of a side note here, but we're talking about the liver. This is probably more for the Siwa episode. But we have these patients that come in for ETOH withdrawals and they might have a bad liver. And I, we're just kind of talking at, at work how we're spending so much money in healthcare 
treating these patients from withdrawals due to their consumption of alcohol? And what are we really doing here if we're not asking the patient the honest truth? Like, are you going to quit drinking? Mm. If you're not going to, why don't we just supplement them with what their body needs and let them continue living their life? Because now you stressed out the body. We gave them all these freaking benzos and all these medications. I'm sure there's withdrawals from Ativan too that the body's experiencing. So why not just have them withdraw from one drug versus the multi-factor from us pushing them freaking Haldol, mm. Zyprex, uh, Seroquel, Ativan. Like we have no idea how much more that might complicate his hospital stay, increase mortality and, and everything else from what we're doing. Yeah, there's a crazy concept when you when you told, told me about it because if the patient is not willing to change and you know he's going to just drink when he leaves the hospital and he he, he notices he, he has no care of changing, then yeah. What was the point of trying to, you could say, sober him up and possibly complicate things instead of just giving him some alcohol? I just thought about it. We There was a lady in Austin and you helped me with her. It's just funny, but I'm recalling her. And she came in for a simple procedure, OR procedure. She she started withdrawing. Things got more complicated. She needed oxygen. We gave her Ativan. She needed BiPAP. Mm-hmm. She ended up getting intubated at one point. What if that all could have been prevented from a freaking little corona. Yeah. Have a have a corona freaking once a day or two times a day pre- prescribed. You did your surgery, you're healing, get discharged home, continue doing what you're doing, but we did provide you ed- education on that you should quit and maybe given that option like I'm here, I'm willing to comply of not drinking and I'm com- willing to comply to be in the hospital to have withdrawal symptoms. Mm, yeah. I don't know. We should maybe make like an ethanol drip or something, right? Like for <laughs> patients that don't, money, man. yeah, patients that, that don't have any kind of initiative to stop drinking. You know they're gonna go home and drink. Why don't we just put like a ethanol drip instead of like pushing Ativan every fifteen minutes to an hour? Just put them a little, a little ethanol drip. Yeah, maybe that'll be the future of medical management for these uh, patients. Yeah. So how do you diagnose liver cirrhosis? Of course, you can get a scan that could show abnormal thickening, like an ultrasound. But the most definite test to find out if you have cirrhosis is a liver biopsy, which shows you the destruction of the fibrosis and the hepatic tissues. Yeah, liver imaging, like CT scans, that'll show you some some stuff as well. So maybe abnormal growths helps with with also diagnosing uh, the uh, the liver, or if maybe if you have. A cancer or something that is developed because of your poor liver it could catch metastasis any kind of venous malformations or any kind of abnormal abnormal vasculature you could say that's that's been highlighted in, in the ct scan um i don't know how to pronounce this but cholesterolograph i have never seen this done but this visualizes your gallbladder and a biliary duct i feel like this is more of like a maybe med surge or outpatient kind of thing that they do yeah they they could do this maybe prior to getting your gallbladder moved to see how it is and sometimes they'll do this before the tips procedure so if they see something's i don't know if this is I don't know if they originally do this test and it turns into the tips mm. because tips is just stenting it. So do they first do the cholangiography? They see the bilary duct. Okay, let's put a stent in mm. to decrease portal hypertension. But that's out of our scope of practice, of yeah, course. Yeah, I mean, it seems legit. Yeah, I figured <laughs> out. I trust you. <laughs> we have a spleen portal venography, which is visualizes the portal venous system, less invasive. Then we have the percutaneous transhepatic cholangiography, which is... Sounds like the TIPS procedure, bro. But it's a test to just, it's very invasive. It's intrahepatic and it's just showing where the obstructions can be that's leading to the hepatic pathology pathology of what's happening or 
due to the presence of gallstones in the gallbladder. Yeah. Or just simply drawing blood. They do your labs and they could they could help diagnose diagnose your uh, your cirrhosis or what kind of a stage you're in of your uh, of the liver failure. If your WCs are off, your platelets are off, your RBCs are off, your bilirubin is off. All that all that shows that this is going to be a liver issue versus like if your creatinine is, is up and you're just holding on fluid. That's probably mm-hmm. it's going to be a kidney issue. But if all your coagulation stuff, or if you're not sure if it's the kidneys or if it's the or if it's the liver, what's the problem? Well, a liver is responsible for a lot more things. You're going to see a lot more abnormalities in your labs with uh, with liver disease than you are with, with just like kidney disease or any kind of other um, organ disease. From a medical management standpoint, it's usually symptom management. As you know, once the liver goes bad, it goes bad. You can be on a transplant list. There's a certain criteria to hit. If the patient is still actively drinking, more than likely they're not a candidate or I don't know the exact uh, criteria for that. But if you're not a candidate, you're basically SOL in a sense where you're doing just symptom management one of them is with diet. So you want to limit uh, high calorie diets and protein because you can't break the down properly. So restricting protein is one of them. Then you're going to have sodium restrictions because you want to um, blink and not fluid overload. You don't have fluid overload. You don't, you don't have fluid overload because water follows salt. So the sodium restrictions and the fluid restrictions kind of go hand to hand in this process to kind of off offset that. And you're going to obviously have to decrease activity. They're not going to be able to hold off or or hold on to the same activity level as they were, especially if they were athletic or doing kind of any strange physical activity. Because people, you know, for example, let's do a back to the sea walls. People that, that that drink a lot, they could still they could be functional alcoholics. They could still go throughout their throughout their day. But once they go to the hospital and symptoms become that severe, you're not going to be able to you're not going to want to get them out of bed for a long time. They're not going to be able to first of all last that long out of bed. They're gonna be they're gonna be so weak, and plus you don't want to cause any issues. Like for example, have a walk around and fall. And now you're now you're even having a hard time with their coagulopathies because now they fall. So now you, now you really got to figure your shit out. So definitely bed rest kind of stuff. Maybe walk around a little bit, but nothing nothing too too strenuous. And it's going to slowly their activity is slowly going to decrease over time. And we could also do like Matt said before, paracentesis, where we alleviate the ascites, drain some of that fluid in the abdomen. And there's also something called a Minnesota tube, where I think you've mentioned as well. So where a tube is placed in a, in a, an abdomen, and uh, it helps with the pressure, any kind of kind of hemorrhage that that's going on, and maybe the abdomen or wherever the hemorrhage is happening. And I've never seen it Neither before. Right. Maybe mm-hmm. bigger teaching hospitals, maybe they already have better procedures. But yeah, never. I think I only. You know the intra-abdominal like pressures like CVP mm. or ICP. I've only seen that maybe once, and mm. I can't remember the case that well. Yeah, um, maybe in here we could also throw in uh, a thoracentesis, mm. which is less due to the liver. It's more of a secondary complication due to liver cirrhosis, which causes fluid in the lungs, and we tap them through a different cavity, not the para perineum, but the thora, the thoracent, the thoracic, <laughs> thoracic area, thoracic. Region. <laughs> Almost like plural, but not there yet, you know? Yeah, a little bit above. Yeah. Uh, so some pharmacological interventions that we will do, what kind of medication they're going to be on. First one is usually going to be octreotide drip. I'm not sure if you had him when he was on octreotide drip, but when I had him, he was on octreotide drip for a little bit. So octreotide is actually a, a really cool uh, medication that is really beneficial to people in, with liver failure because it, it improves renal function. It improves the exchange of sodium. That In that sense, it almost helps with with ascites and and fluids um it just improves overall peripheral hemodynamics in cirrhosis patients and also help helps decrease 
esophageal varices because it also helps decrease that portal hypertension. Plus, it also controls the emptying of the stomach and the bowels, so it gives you some more protection for your for your GI tract. Um, you have a decrease in ulcer formation, so it's actually a really really good drug for people that are, are in liver failure because it hits like the main problems GI problems with the ulcers and then helps with the uh, esophageal varices that if you puncture or or nick can lead to severe severe bleeding and potentially death to your patient. Another another pharmacological therapy is a diuretic, Lasix. In this case, that's usually given for edema secondary to what's happening. However, given that medication, you just be careful. Monitor the eyes and nose, blood pressure, and electrolytes. If you have a patient that maybe the potassium is three point two and they replace with forty, but you're giving diuretics BID, use your critical care. Maybe get another follow up lab if you can, or maybe that's nurse driven where you could just check it after four hours, put the order in just to keep them on top of um, that light. Because mm -hmm. if K goes bad, a lot of complications there. Yeah, and antibiotics, we usually give those not necessarily because there's an infection you could say, but some of the antibiotics help with decreasing the the byproduct of, of certain metabolization processes that bacteria go through. So it'll help decrease that ammonia. It might not necessarily have a really bad infection or infection needing antibiotics, but we just give them for a second use case, you know, which is going to be decrease of that ammonia in, in the system. Uh, beta blockers, that's going to help with the, with the different uh, pressure issues that the patient is, is experiencing, mainly for the esophageal varices, it slows down the heart, decreases the force of contraction. It's going to help prevent a rupture of these uh, varices. And nitrates, same concept. It's going to vasodilate certain vessels that's going to, to end up helping with the portal hypertension that leads to a lot of these different problems and, and cascades and last but not least lactulose mm. as we talked about encephalopathy helps bind with um ammonia mm. yeah and then immersed blood products as needed you might be given some vitamin k might be given some plasma just depending on what the what the patient is needing if they're bleeding they're obviously going to need some some blood so surgical management so what do we what can we do for these for these patients matt mentioned the uh tips procedure um it's used to treat the varices of the of the of the upper uh, GI tract and you're basically you're banding them and preventing the, um, the expansion of the of this pressure in the in the portal vein or wherever this um, this um, banding is, is actually occurring. Yes. So yeah, you could get, you could get an upper endoscopy for that. You could band or you could. Um, I think they even do the stents in these um, the shunt where it helps decrease the the portal hypertension. And then of course the liver transplant, which is a surgical procedure. It could be a new liver, partial or full, just depending if they're a candidate. So a nursing standpoint, what are you going to do besides passing meds and looking for the signs and symptoms? You're going to be monitoring blood glucose levels. We talked about glucose quite a bit. You're going to monitor for hyperglycemia or hypo because it could go both ways. You're going to assess for any kind of jaundice or worsening jaundice. The more jaundice the patient looks, the more yellow his eyes are, the more bilirubin rumen he's having therefore precipitating the worser outcome for somebody that's in liver failure. Yeah. Lots of fluid issues. Matt mentioned the uh, whole ascites, um, all the stuff with albumin and not being able to properly excrete and hold on to fluids. So we want to monitor eyes and nose very closely, daily weights, any kind of uh, change in, in, in weight is going to equate to more uh, fluid uh, residual. You can say your body's holding on to fluids and maybe you're going to recommend some, some Lasix for that patient. And aside from all the medical things that we're doing for this patient, from a nursing standpoint, how are we assessing the patient? We're going to worry about three things, bleeding, 
fluid retention and mentation. So signs and symptoms of bleeding, it could be anywhere through the urine, through the gum, the stools, maybe they're vomiting something, check for bleeding there. Fluid retention, strict eyes and nose, I would throw in some abdominal weights there. Some people mention um, checking the abdominal girth, measuring that. Honestly, guys, I've been a nurse for six years. Peter probably can confess. Yeah. How much times have you measured the abdominal girth? A half. Okay, so yeah, it's in the nursing books. We're going to say it on the show. We have never personally done it. Just monitor fluid retention, just weights and eyes and nose. Mm. And the last thing is mentation due to ammonia. When you get a when you get your patient, get a baseline assessment, ask the priors what's their mentation, and just monitor it closely to see if their personality or their behavior is changing and if you need to follow up on ammonia level yeah and nursing is interesting because you looked at you looked at objective things like your labs and you look at subjective things how the patient is actually reacting so you could have a patient that's totally mentally asymptomatic but then you see a slowly worsening of the labs so in your mind you're almost thinking like okay well this patient is getting worse and worse and worse on a on a, on a objective level but subjective device is still the same so you go into kind of already realize like hey his labs are going to shit means he's slowly gonna mentally start going down the drain too and it's kind of how it follows or a patient could could be really bad bad mentally and then you might see an improvement in their labs and then somehow the patient slowly gets better over time so you see like both the objective stuff and the subjective stuff and how they go go hand to hand so it's really cool it's it's very fortunate to be a nurse sometimes and you could actually understand the disease process and how objective reasoning works hand in hand with like subjective reasoning that's why nursing is so important because you get to see both of them versus the the physician kind of he sees more of the objective stuff until he does his rounds and he has a little bit of subjective stuff but usually they don't always remember how the patient was acting last week or four days ago they kind of know the day-to-day day changes but they don't always are able to capture these um these, these other changes that nurses see yeah. on a daily basis yeah and that's like the learning curve with becoming a more experienced nurse or leveling up from like a newbie to a novice to mm-hmm. an expert where you see things subjective you're doing the medication so some nurses are not connecting dots. It's all separate. And once you get the whole picture together, you just become a better nurse. Like, okay, you see the subjective, you're already medically thinking of what labs or what you should ask the doctor for because you know the process of how things go down. Yeah, and it's really cool when you get to that stage of in your nursing career where you're able to be able to almost foretell what's going to happen. For example, like you mentioned, these labs, labs are off, patient's fine, but now, you know, he's, he's, not, he's not with it anymore. So some nurses might think, oh, he's sundowning. But really, he's not sundowning. It's not a sundowning issue. It's the issue of his labs getting worse. It's the ammonia is getting worse. So maybe it'd be a good idea to check the ammonia level because it's probably higher than it was before versus just sundowning something that just happens because a person gets confused. So those kind of uh, putting things things together, it makes you feel kind of like, damn, like I actually kind of know some shit. Yeah. All right, beautiful episode. I honestly learned a lot preparing for this episode, reading about the show notes, the, the cuffer cells, the paddocytes, jam-packed episode. If you guys love this stuff, Give us some love. Let us know what kind of episodes you want to see. Maybe in the future, different disease processes. Let us know. Shoot a comment there. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye.